One of my favorite memories uh, when our kids were younger was uh, just having time to be able to read stories to them. And uh, some of those stories, you read them so many times and they kind of stick with you and you carry them with you. And one of them was, uh, a, 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 it was a, an illustrated book, beautifully illustrated, but a, but a simple uh, story uh, by an author named Max Lucado. Uh, the, the story was called All You Ever Need. And it was the story of a small village in a, uh, a, a desert setting where there just wasn't enough rainwater for the people to survive. Uh, very dangerous conditions. And yet all was still well because there was uh, a man named, by the name of Tobias who they called the water master. And Tobias had the only... Uh, natural spring uh, and uh, well in, in that area. And that was good because Tobias was a very generous man. He and his son be- believed that the water should go to everyone free of charge. And so uh, the villagers would come and they would get as much water as they needed. And Tobias was eager for them to, uh, to enjoy that all was well until Tobias and his son had an unexpected journey to make. And they would be traveling away, and so they put one of their servants in charge of uh, the water and the distribution of it. At first, things started off pretty much as they had done when Tobias was there. He, he distributed the water to those who uh, uh, needed it in the village. And yet, as he did so, he began to get a little bit annoyed because some of the villagers who came for the water just didn't seem very thankful. And so he instituted a rule that the water would only be given out to the people who were grateful for that water. And he turned away the ones that weren't thankful enough. Uh, That continued for for a little while, and then he determined there were just, there's some neighbors that just weren't kind. They were, they were actually mean to their neighbors. And so he added another rule that you don't get any of Tobias's water unless you are kind to your neighbor. This continued and on and on, he added more rules, more conditions, more things by which you had to prove that you were worthy enough of Tobias's water. Finally, uh, a stranger came to the village and uh, he uh, came to the servant and asked for some water. He he was then made to prove his worthy. He didn't know, they didn't know, you know, where does this person come from? We don't know if he is kind to his neighbor. We don't know if he is really going to be grateful. And so he had to show that he was worthy of this water and the servant demanded that of him. And it was at that point when the, the uh, stranger removed his, uh, his head covering, revealed himself to be uh, Tobias' son, and he said, my father has sent me to make sure that water is available freely and is available for all. It was just a simple parable of the love of God and the free grace of God uh, that he has for all people. And yet it wasn't just a simple story. In another sense, it was a dark and terrible story of how religion can go wrong, 
of, of how the grace of God can fall off the rails and in the hands of people who would seek to control it and use it for, for uh, power and for their own means. And today's passage is just as, as unsettling. It uh, shows how a person who is exposed to the grace of God, who receives the grace of God themselves, uh, can then corrupt the grace of God, turn it into something it was never intended to be. It's a warning against how the, the church can go wrong, how the church can fall off the rails. But it's also a warning for each of us as we examine our own hearts. As we examine, if, if you are someone who has said, yeah, I have put my faith in Jesus and I have received God's free grace, it challenges us to consider how we express that grace, how we express it to the people around us, uh, how we express it to our children, how we express it to even other, other people in, in the church and, and how we relate to one another. It, it, it forces us to see whether we have uh, seen the grace of God for ourselves and whether somehow we, uh, we have uh, allowed the sin that is in all of our hearts to uh, distort that grace as it's expressed to others. Uh, to, to look into that, we need to go to the scriptures uh, and I want to encourage you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5 if you have your Bible. Uh, if you don't, it's in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 290. And I'm just going to work from uh, all the way down from verse 20 to verse 27. It is, this is our final, uh, final installment as we have been uh, working, working through this, uh, uh, this chapter and this story of Naaman, the, the Syrian general who was healed of his leprosy. And we're picking up the story today where that, that Syrian general, Naaman, has been healed, and now he's heading back to his homeland. He's going back to Syria, and uh, he is filled with gratefulness for God's healing in his life and his work through the prophet Elisha. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 20 to 27. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent them away. And they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. This is the word of God. 
Now, if the Bible was a, a fairy tale, this story wouldn't have been in it. We would have just concluded with our last week's uh, passage where Naaman is healed and it would just say, and everyone lived happily ever after. But the Bible isn't a fairy tale and it is far more honest and frank and, and confronting and, and addressing the sin that exists in our hearts. And even if that sin exists in the heart of uh, uh, someone who claims to so- serve and love God. And that's what we have in today's passage. And so we have to assume that this is given us for a reason. It, it's, we didn't just have the happily ever after happy ending that, where we left off last time because we need to learn uh, and be aware of the other side. This passage warns us against Gehazis in the church today. And I believe it also warns us of Gehazi-like tendencies in our own heart. Ways in which we can take the grace of God that we have been freely given and distort it in the ways that we communicate it and express it. The ways that we express it to our children, to our neighbors, to the people that are around us. And the first warning that we, we have here in addressing those Gehazi tendencies Uh, is that you're pulling a Gehazi when your prejudice corrupts God's grace. While God accepts us freely, we can somehow and sometimes not take that same free acceptance that God offered to us, and uh, sometimes we withhold it from other people. We we reserve it for people who are like us, people who think like us and and share uh, things uh, and, and backgrounds and and this, uh, this challenges us that we're pulling a Gehazi when our prejudice corrupts the grace of God. In, in verse 20, as Gehazi sees Naaman go off into the sunset, it's clear right away that he's angry, that, that he thinks something is wrong in what's happened. He says, see, my, sa- my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian. He calls him the Syrian because that's how Gehazi sees him. He doesn't doesn't see him just as an individual. He can't divorce his understanding of this person from who he is. He can't get past what the Syrians have done to Israel. He he can't get past what the Syrians represent. Can't get past what losses they have inflicted. Remember, this is a time in history where Syria ruled over this area and Israel had had been on the receiving end of raiding parties and losses in war. And they had been made to feel like a loser nation, a loser people. And that has created in Gehazi's heart a bitterness. And he feels, now this man is healed, this is an opportunity for payback. This is where I can get something back because I have suffered enough. I have lost enough. Now I will make this man pay. That kind of prejudice will corrupt the grace of God. will take the message of God and turn it into something it was never intended to be. It, It makes it seem like God has favorites. It makes it seem like what you really need is the grace of God but if you're from a certain country or from a certain background, you've got to pay extra. You don't quite get in as freely as some other people. And it destroys what the church was meant to be. 
There was a, a two, 2004 study that was done in uh, Boston and Chicago, and what they did was to take 5,000 resumes that were, they were fabricated, they were made up, but uh, they, they sent those 5,000 resumes of varying uh, details, and uh, they sent them out to 1,500 job applications. What people receiving these, these uh, resumes didn't know is that the job applications that, that had been fabricated, of these 5,000, they were divided, and in fact, they were, they were identical resumes, uh, but those resumes had been duplicated with different names. It's the only thing that was different about the resumes, uh, they, were, they, they had different names. Uh, they deliberately gave half of those resumes uh, European-sounding names like uh, Emily Walsh and Greg Baker, and to half of the other resumes, again, identical content except for the name, they gave uh, African background-sounding names like Lakeisha Washington and Jamal Jones. And what they experienced was that the European-sounding names got 50% more callbacks than the African-sounding names. And it was just one more uh, uh, example of how ugly our society's prejudice and discrimination can be that just on the basis of a name, people will make an evaluation, that people will, will bring all of their prejudices and bias and, and express that in discrimination. The church in each generation finds itself dealing with a version of this. In the first century, there were bias and prejudice problems going on on several different levels. Uh, there was the the bias and prejudice between rich and poor because the, the status uh, that existed and the, the discrimination between various groups was strong in the first century. But there was also the, the uh, discrimination that took place between slave and free, people that were, that, that, that were born free, lived free versus those who were in slavery. And finally, there was the the lines between Jew and Gentile, between those who had, who had been born with J Jewish ethnicity and those who were, in their minds, on the outside. James wrote, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, that is, if you discriminate on the basis of a person's background or group, then, he says, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The message was that the grace of God was intended to undo those biases and, and the discrimination because the message of Christianity is that God, in his grace, at great personal sacrifice, sought to express love to people who had made themselves outsiders to him that he would reach out in love to those who had made themselves his enemies. And having been touched by that kind of love, by that kind of grace, that grace is intended to transform the way that we relate to others. Peter assumed that the great grace of God was just for Jews. That's what he'd been taught. That's what he'd believed. He grew up believing as a faithful Jew, you need to keep your distance from, from Gentiles, from Greeks and Romans. You need to keep your 
distance from them because they're going to contaminate you. They're going to, they're going to make you more sinful. They're going, to, they're going to just corrupt who you are and what, you, what you've done. And so the message was keep your distance from them. God had to deal with that, that, that heart or he knew that the grace of God, at least as Peter expressed it and others who followed, would be turned into something different turned into something that it was never intended to be. And so God brought him a vision. In fact, he had to repeat that vision several times. And then he brought an unusual encounter. And finally, Peter got the message and he realized what God was saying. And he declared, truly, I understand God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to God. He realized that he needed to realign his attitude, his practices, his way of relating to the people around him to come under God and to have it reflect the grace of God that he himself had experienced. And until he did, the message that uh, he would send was that you needed God's grace plus. God's grace plus the right ethnicity. God's grace plus the right social background, the right the right credentials, the the right education, whatever it might be. And God confronted that. He wanted to undo that so that the message of his free grace would be communicated clearly. There's no room for the prejudice of Gehazi in the church of God, the family of God. And and so we're we're left with the question, how, how do you relate to people who are different than you? How do you see people that... Don't, don't look like you. Don't, don't, don't talk like you. Don't have the same background as you. How do you relate to them? How do you see them? How big is your group? How big is the group of people that you will let in, that you will accept and trust and relate to? How open is your hand? How wide is your door? We're pulling a Gehazi when we let our prejudice corrupt God's grace. When we let it get in in the way of the message that we have received and the treatment that we have received at God's hand. We're also pulling a Gehazi when our greed corrupts God's grace. Because what often can happen is that people will try to capitalize on the gratefulness that that people have towards God and they will see see it as an opportunity to get something from, from them. Uh, that something could be different things for different people. For Gehazi, it was, it was money. Um, for other people, it could be power. It could be influence. It could be lust. It could be any number of things that, that, that grip people's heart as a, a temptation. But what is common to each of them is that they see gratefulness in God's people as an opportunity to capitalize in some way. I'll get something for myself. And when our... Our greed corrupts God's grace. We're following in the footsteps of Gehazi. Now, as Gehazi watched Naaman walk away with a healing, it ate him up inside. He just had the sense that I got to do something. He thought it was an opportunity for a payday. And in verse 20, he says, as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Interestingly, if you've been with us for this series, you'll recognize as the Lord lives was the exact same thing that the prophet Elisha said when he refused the money from Naaman. 
he, he called upon God and recognized as a, as a vow, I need to draw a line in the sand to refuse this money in order not to, to corrupt God's grace. Here, Gehazi repeats the same words, calls on the same God to get something for himself, to use it as an opportunity for exploitation and greed. God takes it very seriously the way we use his name. Instead of just asking for the money himself, he makes up a story about a couple of visiting seminary students. Because who isn't sympathetic to seminary students, right? He says, he, he, he says, they've just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. It just seems so, so generous of him, so hospitable of him. But it's greed masked as spirituality. even lies and says that it was Elisha's idea. In verse 22, his ask is for a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. He knows that Naaman has brought 10 talents of silver and uh, lots of gold as well. So he figures this is probably a fairly safe thing to ask for. But we know that a talent of silver, and we've seen already in our series, a talent of silver was a bag of silver, about 75 pounds, and it would be enough to set, set Gehazi up for life. This was a small fortune, even, even still. And it's a picture of this greed overtake, overtaking a, a, a person and how greedy people can feed off of religion. It shows how people can prey on others' gratefulness. Some of you may have followed the, the, uh, uh, the, the events with Costi uh, Hinn. Costi Hinn is the nephew of the famous, famous uh, faith healer, Benny Hinn. And he has recently come out with a book called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. And in it, he describes his childhood, what it was like to grow up uh, in this uh, family and his famous uncle, um, as well as spend a, uh, a year before he went off to college in um, working as a catcher, which is someone who catches the people who are uh, falling as, uh, uh, as Benny Hinn prays for them. But he writes this, Growing up in the Hinn family empire was like belonging to some hybrid of the royal family and the mafia. Our lifestyle was lavish, our loyalty was enforced, and our vision of the gospel was big business. Though Jesus Christ was still a part of our gospel, he was more of a magic genie than the king of kings. Rubbing him the right way by giving money and having enough faith would unlock your spiritual inheritance. God's goal was not his glory, but our gain. His grace was not to set us free from sin, but to make us rich. The abundant life he offered wasn't eternal, it was now. We lived the prosperity gospel. Now, Costihan eventually broke free from that, and uh, he's written the book to warn others about the dangers. But we recognize that the tendencies of greed and its, its uh, uh, power to corrupt the free grace of God isn't just for famous faith healers with private jets. It, it exists in our own hearts, and there are many different ways that it can influence us as well. 
Ironically, it's the Syrian general, Naaman, who shows us, the, shows us what the grace of God is intended to accomplish in our lives. You can see his compassion already in verse 21. It says, And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And if, if you've been with us through this series, you know that Naaman was the kind of person in terms of his power and his status and just his physical uh, strength. He, he was the kind of person that didn't need to get down from the chariot from anyone. And yet, touched by the grace of God, the humility that has overcome him, he, he jumps out of the chariot for a servant that's come to him. And you can almost hear the tenderness in his voice when he says to the ter- servant, is all well? Is there anything I can do for you? And you can see the, the gentleness and the compassion, the care that he has for others. When Gehazi asks him for a talent of silver in verse 22, Naaman offers him two talents. I'll give you a couple bags of silver. And not that Gehazi needed any persuasion, but verse 23 says, and he urged him. Like, please take two two bags of silver. Please, I, I, I want to give this to you. He didn't just even take the two bags of silver or offer them to him. He gave him two servants to carry this silver for him. And the scene shows not only... As, as, as the exchange takes place, you have the servants of Naaman, they're walking ahead and Gehazi is following almost like a royal procession. He's, he's, he's got everything he wanted. He's got his money. He's got servants walking in front of him. He just feels, feels like he's got the power and the influence and the wealth and the opportunity that he wanted and because it's a Syrian, he thinks he deserves it. He thinks he's done a good thing. Naaman's heart shows us what happens when someone's genuinely been touched by the grace of God. Jesus tried to instill this in his own disciples. He said, you received without paying, give without pay." He expected that the free grace of God that they had received would change them, that it would affect how they related to other people. They, they ex- he expected that that free grace of God would give them a freeness and a generosity towards others. That's certainly the testimony of the early church. God's grace welled up in a generosity that as you're reading through the book of Acts, you're thinking, boy, I think they're, I think they're going a little too far here. They're, they're too generous. They're, they're almost crazy with their finances. And, and yet it wasn't compulsion, it wasn't rules, it was people who had experienced the rich and lavish grace of God in their lives and it just poured out. That, that's why when the finance committee reports that giving is a struggle for us as a church or that there are just a, a small core of committed givers that tithe regularly, give sacrificially, and they report that as a financial issue, we recognize from a passage like this, it's not just a financial issue, it's a grace issue. It's a grace issue because if you think that you have earned your place with God, if you think that you've kind of lived a pretty good life and you're pretty faithful, like you, you attend church most Sundays, and, 
God should be happy to have you on the team, then there's not going to be a lot of gratefulness welling up inside you. You're not going to be feeling a lot of generosity pouring out of you. You're going to just kind of think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on God's team and he's probably happy that I'm on his team and, and we're kind of got even accounts and I'm, I'm kind of checking in with him every once in a while and he probably, you know, check in with me every once in a while. We're, we're just kind of, we're, we've evened things up. There's not going to be any generosity flowing from that heart. But the grace of God does something different. When we recognize that we had nothing to give and he gave what we needed, it, it changes us. It humbles us. It creates a, a generosity in us. So it's not just Benny Hinn and the prosperity gospel that gets this wrong. Where money is concerned, we all face the temptation. We all feel uh, the, the pull. And yet we all also, when we recognize and receive the free grace of God, we feel that power that, uh, that, that, that gratefulness creates. So the passage warns us that we're pulling a Gehazi when our greed corrupts God's grace. And the final warning is about our impatience. We're pulling a Gehazi when our impatience corrupts God's grace. What impatience does is it, it makes us want the non-Christians to act like Christians before they're Christians. It, it, it makes us eager to see the, the results of grace before there has even been an experience of grace. It adds conditions to God's free grace because we're not willing to wait for it. So our, we're pulling a Gehazi when our impatience corrupts the grace of God. Now we've already seen that the, the, the prejudice of Gehazi was inexcusable. We've seen the greed of Gehazi, and we're saying totally unwarranted. But as you look at the text, it seems to indicate that his crime and his sin was all that much worse because of the timing. In, in verse 24, Naaman's men have dropped off the sacks of silver at Gehazi's house, and he doesn't want to arouse any of his suspicion, so Gehazi goes straight back to the prophet, stands before him. When Elisha asks him where he's been, he just says, your servant went nowhere. Now at this point, the Bible, the, the text doesn't make it clear. I think this is, though, pretty strong evidence that Gehazi was, was a teenager. What, what were you doing? Nothing. Where'd you go? Nowhere. I, like, these, these are just the kind of responses that we might see. I, I don't know what's going on exactly, but, but you, you have something like that going on. Then in verse 26, Elisha makes it clear to him that he saw everything that happened. And this is kind of like the all-seeing parent. Like, how on earth did you see that? In this case, he has supernatural uh, discernment has been given to him by God. But uh, something, it feels a little bit like a parent-teen exchange where like, whoa, how'd you know that? I, I didn't know, you, you know, you have spies at the movie theater or something? Like, what happened? Like, anyway, so something like that is happening here. He asks him then in verse 26, was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? See, Gehazi had just taken silver and clothing, but Elisha here is listing all the things that he knows that Gehazi has his heart on buying with that stuff. Notice, though, that the question is one of time. 
What he had done was particularly evil because of the timing. Was it a time to do this? He asks. Asking for money at the moment of Naaman's conversion was particularly evil because if it was six months later or two years later and he had come to him with a genuine need, said, you know what? Actually, this time I really do have two seminary students and I'm kind of, we're out of, you know. If he had presented a genuine need at a different time, not such a big deal. Naaman may have responded and, and it may not have, have uh, had such uh, huge implications. But just after his healing, it would have to make Naaman think, I knew there'd be a catch. I knew that the God of Israel, just like all those other gods, this is just a power play. They're just, they're always after my money. That's all this was. If, if I need to give them a healing to get it, I'll give them a healing. But I knew all along they were all just after my money. And that would be how, how you or I or Naaman presumably would walk away from an encounter like that. It's all about the money. God was trying to get something from me. And that was, that's what made, in this case, Gehazi's sin so much greater. It, it intervened in the life of someone who had just been exposed to the grace of God. And it would distort and corrupt and ruin that grace and that message of grace. If we don't understand the grace of God, or if our impatience gets the better of us, we can corrupt that message in very much the same way. In Jesus' day, the religious people didn't understand that. He was spending time with people that they just didn't think he should be spending time with. They're not worthy. He, they, wanted, they didn't not only wanted Christians to act like Christians, they wanted non-Christians to act like Christians too. And they didn't want to spend time with people until they were cleaned up and acted like them. And so they criticized Jesus saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What is he? Does he have no standards? Doesn't he know that you should have rules on who gets to spend time with you? And they sent the not-so-subtle message that to be saved, you not only had to trust in Jesus, but you had to be like them. You had to be a part of their club and live up to their expectations and follow their rules. And it corrupts the grace of God. And unfortunately, generation after generation after generation, the, the details change, but the church struggles with this 2,000 years later. Christians str struggle with this 2,000 years later. Adding a little bit to the gospel and changing it into something that it was never intended to be. The same thing happens today when you take a double, do a double take at how a visitor is dressed or what they're doing or, or what they're not doing or, or how they should be acting. Or, or when you express disappointment and surprise at, at uh, a newcomer's lack of commitment or, or not, not, not kind of fitting in the way you think they should be fitting in. That somehow we forget the grace that God showed toward us and towards other people. It's, it's all expectation and law and demands. 
and we lose something. We wreck something when we do that. Now, as we try to size up what's happened, we've, we've got a general who's been healed. He's, he has been gloriously and miraculously healed of his leprosy. He's encountered the living God and he's given him his allegiance and his worship. And we've seen that Gehazi had some greed, that he had lied, and, and we've said like, those things were wrong. But, but frankly, Naaman was prepared to give it a whole lot more. And it seems as you come to the end of this story, like everyone, everyone's kind of happy. Like everything kind of should be working out pretty much the way you, know, you wanted. Gehazi's happy, Naaman's happy. And we might have thought, well, maybe we could just end it here. Maybe it's not so bad. And then you read the last verse. We read verse 27 and we see Gehazi cursed with the same leprosy that Naaman was cured of. Terrible, terrible punishment. Severe, strong. And you realize what a serious thing it is to corrupt the grace of God. Put your faith in Jesus and just make a $1,000 donation to our church and you'll be saved. Put your faith in Jesus and follow our rules and you'll be saved. Put your faith in Jesus and act like us, then you'll be saved. It's just a little, little difference. Just, a, just added a little bit, but it turned it into a different religion took the free grace of God and undid it, destroyed it, and killed it. Reminds me a little bit of the woman who was on a, a shopping trip in Europe, and she had wandered into a jewelry store and found this diamond bracelet she just fell in love with. Gorgeous. She's putting it on, and she's looking at it, and she's excited, and... Then the clerk tells her how much this diamond bracelet actually costs. She's like, oh my goodness, she's, she's shocked and horrified. But she thought, maybe, maybe, just maybe, I could catch my husband in a generous mood. And so she texts him. She texts him a little picture of the, of the bracelet, and she mentions the price, and she waits for his response. Husband gets a text. He sees the picture. Oh, that's, that's pretty nice. Then he sees the price and he's like horrified, shocked, no way. And he says, no, price too high. Only in his shock and excitement, he forgot the comma. And so his wife excitedly read, no price too high. <laughs> it's just a little, a little thing, a little detail. And the whole message gets turned on its head. And we can do the same thing with the grace of God. To get the gospel a little wrong is not a little wrong. To get the gospel a little wrong is to undo it and to turn it into something it was never intended to be. So let's treat the grace of God as seriously as God is and guard it in our church and guard it in our own lives. Have you let God's grace break down your prejudice? And help you open your heart to people who are different than you? Have you let God's grace break down your greed and create in you the spirit of generosity that you see in Naaman?
Have you let the grace of God break down your impatience and help you wait for grace, grace and maturing in people's lives the way that you know that God has waited and been patient in your life? The grace of God has the power to change and transform and save us if we let it. Let's look to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we ask you for forgiveness. Ask your forgiveness in getting grace wrong. I pray for anyone here who has been wounded by a Gehazi. And we pray that you would heal us of his tendencies that we see and recognize in our own selves. Help us to offer acceptance as freely as you do. Help us to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. Help us to be givers rather than takers. And help us to show the same kind of patience and understanding that you've shown to us. For we ask you in Jesus' name.